Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is April 17th, 2014. This is episode 1336 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Thursday. And we're gonna, we're gonna continue on with some of these, uh, kind of old school TSP shows. In fact, today's show is actually as old school as it gets. Um, I'm doing a show today called Critical Thinking and Issue Analysis. Now, the, the, the fact are that the bullet points I'm going to use to go through this show are a list of questions that I developed a long time ago for a show I did called The Issues Test. How long ago? September 2009. Episode 269, I did a show using these questions. I did it in my car as I did the show at the time back then. Uh, traveling in and out of uh, different lanes of traffic across the interstate system through the Dallas-Fort Worth metro mess. And um, it was really all about political issues at the time. I've changed a lot over the years, and today I'm going to go through these same questions, and they're going to apply to political issues, but business decisions, it's going to apply to life decisions. It's going to take this, and and, and, I'm, and I think I even said that at the time. I don't know. I, I purposely did not like listen to that show or, or do any research on what I said back then, because I think there's an interesting thing here. This is definitely going to be a different show. It'll be longer, because I can only do about 40, 45 minutes at the time uh, that I was doing the show in the car. Uh, I'll have actually my attention focused on the show today instead of not just uh, like not rear-ending somebody or how to get out of the way of somebody that tries to rear-end me or uh, avoiding uh, you know three-car pile-ups and things like that that go on in the uh, metro mess all the time. But uh, it's also four and a half years. Four and a half years as my thinking has evolved in the journey along with you guys. So I think it'll be a fun show. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal. Talk about old school. Safe Castle is the original survival podcast sponsor. Uh, when there was no one, there was Safe Castle. Yeah, when there were no sponsors at all, there was Vic Rontala at Safe Castle Royal saying, hey, we want to sponsor the show. Uh, so early, in fact, that I actually had to say I'm not ready to take sponsors yet. I don't think that I can give you a return of your investment yet. Uh, give me some more time, and we'll set something up. And when I was ready, they were still there, standing by, ready to support the show. They've been our supporter ever since. TSP will have its sixth year anniversary in June this year. Uh, Safe Castle was just sent a plaque a couple months ago for five years as a, a podcast sponsor. That means that when we go into January this year, it'll be six years with Vic Rantala and Safe Castle as our sponsors. I can't tell you a lot of podcasts that'll last six years. Sponsorship of a podcast for six years, that's just something special about the sponsor, this community, and the show itself. Safe Castle has all the things for your prepping needs. Check them out today at safecastle.com. Next up today, Survival Gear Bags. Now, there's another old school uh, sponsor, huh? Survival Gear Bags has not, not been around as a sponsor for as long because uh, they didn't exist when the show started. Kelly John Doe is a member of the audience, was a member of our forum. I think he has a two-digit forum ID number on the Survival Podcast forum. I know what his uh, handle there is. It's Cart Pusher. He was in the uh, fulfillment industry. Thought he could put together some group buys for folks, and he did so, and uh, it's decided to make a, a run for it uh, as a business. So he runs survival gear bags with great gear and great bags to put the gear in. 
He's uh, done a great job for us as a sponsor, and he even runs the TSP Gear Shop as well. So uh, do check out Survival Gear Bags and TSPGear.com today. Next up today, our MSB discounter of the day. 10% off all purchases at Terroir Seeds. Terroir is like, Terroir and wine would be like the sense of place in the wine. And these are seeds that are proven, heirloom quality. You can save them and replant them year after year and develop your own strains. Terroir Seeds is an amazing, uh, amazing company. Their website is underwoodgardens.com. MSB members get 10% off all purchases at Terroir Seeds. Um, and on that note, do consider joining the member support brigade. Remember, we're running a sell, a sale, a sell. We're running a sale that runs till midnight Sunday, the 20th. Discount code SPRING14, S-P-R-I-N-G, the number 14, SPRING14. Uh, you get your first year for 30 bucks. If you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, I do give you guys a military discount. This sale's a better deal. This sale is a better deal than the military discount that I give out every day. If I were in the military or law enforcement or what have you and I wanted the best deal, I would take this sale, I would cancel my auto renewal, and then next year as you come up on your renewal, get in touch with me and we'll get you the discount code uh, that, that thanks you for your service. But this is a better deal. This is one of the best prices I, I do ever on the Support Brigade. It's an incredible value if you've been thinking about it but haven't done so yet. Consider joining. Find out more by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on members. Again, the discount code for the sale, which runs through Sunday midnight, central time, spring 14. Uh, with that, let's get into the year that was the episode. The year 1336. I got a guy to tell you about that you may have never heard of his name before, or you may know his infamous name. Um, I think that Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us, is right. It was the rise of Hitler that made this name fade into obscurity. Uh, Hitler, 1333? Yeah, seriously. That's how long this guy's name was known as like the greatest evil until the rise of Hitler. The Mongols, Hitler, and the Boston Bombers. Before there was Hitler, there was Tamerlane. In this year, Tamerlane is born in what is present-day Uzbekistan. He is more Turkish than Mongol, but he will grow up to become a legend, and not in a good way. More like the Hitler way. In Baghdad alone, he will put more than 20,000 people to the sword. He will do well for the Mongols, pulling them together in a similar way to Genghis Khan. But Genghis understood commerce and the necessity of keeping roads safe for merchant travel. Tamerlane will not understand that, and as such, Genghis Khan will become a name to be feared and respected. Tamerlane will just be feared, and his name will define evil until Hitler comes along. How does this connect to the Boston Bomber? In my take by Alex Strug, he points out that one of the bomber that was killed was named Tamerlane. Um, and this would be like naming your kid Adolf Hitler. And uh, the irony that, uh, that, that, that things happened the way that they did... Uh, actually, my take on this is something I've tried to convey to people who put uh, undue faith in government. Here you have another op, uh, uh, another example of one of the greatest mass murderers of all time, and he did it through the power of the state and governing authority. If I were to make a list of the hundred people who have killed the most people as individuals, there wouldn't be a single person on that list It didn't do so through the power of the state. Think about that the next time you put your faith in government, and that takes us into our discussion of today's show, the issues test. 
um, and critical thinking. Um, I put a kind of a cutesy little uh, meme picture in today's show notes. You can come take a look at it if you want to at thesurvivalpodcast.com. If you're listening in the future, just look up episode 1336. If you're ever trying to find an episode on our site, we do have a search box. All you have to do is stick the number you're looking for in the search box, hit enter, and you'll find it pretty quick. Um, but this, this, this little poster, and I put this up on Facebook for you guys uh, last week. It's three glasses filled with the yellow fluid about halfway. And uh, the first one says, I'm half full. And the second one has a frowny face, and he says, I'm half empty. So you got a smiley face, half full, a frowny face, half empty. And then you got a guy who just looks kind of like freaked out, and he says, I think this is piss. And the caption is realists, the only one who know what's going, the only ones who really know what's going on. And when I posted that, what I said is realists are often disliked for speaking the truth. You know, people entrench themselves in life and in issues from a pessimistic or optimistic standpoint or from an apathetic standpoint, but one way or another they entrench themselves and they usually do so in absence of all the facts. There's an emotional response. So, for, for instance, and, and I, I do bring up some controversial issues in shows like this, not because it's my intent to convince you of anything, but if it's a polarizing issue, then at least maybe you can feel the polarization and you can understand um, where I'm coming from with the analysis of whether or not you should really give a shit. Okay, So let's look at legalizing marijuana. And, and generally the person that's opposed to it just says, I don't like it, I don't agree with it, I don't think anybody should do it. Well, there's a lot of things I feel that way about that there's no law about that I don't do. But when you start pointing out those things, that person usually becomes angry and miserable and retracts away. I don't want the truth. I don't want to talk about the truth because the truth drags me out of my world where everything is as it should be in my mind. Where it's okay to tell somebody, no, you can't do that. And if you, if you pick the leaves off a plant and hold them in your hand, it is acceptable for men with guns to kidnap you legally. Because if you're making marijuana illegal, that's in effect what you're saying. So I, just, if, I know this is a touchy issue for some people. And if you, if you really think pot should be illegal, fine. Put it on the shelf for five minutes. Just five minutes. And hear, hear me out on this one thing again. You are saying that it is acceptable for someone to be kidnapped at the point of a gun and held against their will for the possession of leaves off a plant. Now you can make any case you want to about how bad those leaves are, but that is still what you're saying. And there are plants that will kill someone if you eat them. Digitalis, foxglove, pretty flower. It is a toxin. If I take it and put it in your food, I can kill you dead with it. But it's not illegal for me to possess. Oleander, highly toxic, not illegal for me to possess. But people get high on marijuana and they don't die. And they don't die. Well, sometimes people on marijuana rob from people. That's a crime. You've taken from somebody. The majority of people that smoke marijuana eat Twinkies and play Tetris and listen to The Grateful Dead. Right? And there are people that have legitimate uses for marijuana. There was just a study we, we, we saw on Fox News. Check this out. 
the study came back and said that they investigated the use of marijuana uh, and its cognitive functions and found that it actually there was a problem because it actually increased the growth of synapses in the brain and let people think better and expanded their mind if they were still in that cognitive development as youth, teenagers, uh, or they had had some sort of damage to their brain, anything from a concussion to PTSD. And this was a problem. This was a problem. And you're right, and they were presenting it as a problem. Like, this doesn't make sense. Well, it's a problem if you're trying to make the case that there's no legitimate medicinal use of marijuana, if it actually has this effect. Well, it has bad side effects. Yeah, so does ibuprofen. You know, certainly so does, like, Paxil, right? So anything you can say about marijuana, you could say about any of these other things that we allow their use, Vicodin, Right, But as you start to examine this, people get upset because you've pulled them out of the reality. Uh, my, my sister-in-law, who's a teacher, we were talking to her about a documentary we watched called Super High Me. Now, before I go forward again, I want to say this. I don't smoke marijuana. I did at one time in my life, and I'm not dumb, so I inhaled because that was the point. Right, And I'm not going to lie about that. But I have no place for marijuana in my life now. If I ever ended up with a chronic pain condition, and I believe that it could help me, I would at least investigate it. And if it did, I would damn well use it for myself. If I ended up with terminal cancer and it allowed me to eat, I would freaking do it, and I would dare anybody to do anything about it. And I don't think I should have to do that, by the way. But I am not making a case for the recreational use of marijuana, though I don't give a damn if you do so. Okay, But I, I'm, on, I'm giving you facts here. This comedian, I can't remember his name, did this documentary. You can get it on Netflix for free if you have Netflix. It's called Super High Me. He went 30 days without smoking marijuana, and then he went 30 days smoking it heavily every day. One of the things he did was take a test, a mental acuity test, and his score actually went up when he was smoking pot. We tell this to my sister-in-law teacher, uh, and she says, well, we just shouldn't tell the kids that. What? So we should not tell them the truth because the truth is incongruent with what we want them to do. Think about that. That's entrenched dogma. That's denial of the truth. Now, the actual thing I would say is my scientific objection to this was I think he took the same test twice. I think he took the exact same test twice. And I would say he might have done better in spite of the marijuana because he had already taken the test once. I'm not sure. I don't know if there was enough control for scientific methodology there. But for a knee-jerk reaction to be, we just won't tell them that. Well, wait a minute. Well, what if it was proven, which it may have been by the study that was just on Fox News yesterday, right? Then, then we should not admit that because we've decided that this thing is evil. Okay? This is more, And the reason I spent all this time with this... This is where I'm coming from with this today. Because as I'm going through these questions today, I don't want to do what I did the first time and go into a bunch of hot-button political issues. So I just brought one up at front, and I'm going to try to stay out of that for the rest of this show as best I can and still get my message across. So let's start out with the questions. And the first question I have, whenever something comes to up 
like, oh, look what they're doing, or whatever, okay? Or they want to pass a law that, or they want to, you know, this and that. Will it affect me? Will it affect me? Meaning us, the average American, the average person. Will it affect us in any way, shape, or form? Now, here's examples of things that would not affect us. A law being proposed by one member of some freaking caucus in Congress that can't even get out of committee, that has no support, that will never, ever, 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 ever be voted on any time in the foreseeable future. Okay? That is a, an example of something that, even if it's a horrific law, it was a law passed that every citizen will have to have their left big toe cut off without anesthesia. Now, if that was passed, that would clearly affect us all. But if it's that nonsensical, if it has no support, if it isn't going to happen, then it doesn't affect me. So I don't have any time to spend any energy at all on it. Here's another example of a very recent occurrence, a real-world occurrence, had nothing to do with legislation. But I watched members of this audience of the Christian persuasion go crazy over this, post it all over Facebook, and, and, and just like, we got, we can't let this happen. People of Oklahoma, don't let this happen. <laughs> a group in New York <laughs> proposed that a statue of Baal, Satan basically, be erected in Oklahoma on the court, at the courthouse where the Ten Commandments are proudly displayed in a, in a memorial, uh, for equal, I don't know, exposure of religion or whatever. Okay? Now, <laughs> listen. Here's another example. This does not affect you. And I'll tell you why it doesn't affect you. Because it was never, ever, ever going to happen. In fact, those of you who were misled to resist it, think of what I said two days ago with resist. When you resist something, you give it power, especially when it had no power in the first place. Those of you who, who made a big deal about this, who posted it to Facebook and Twitter, who emailed it to all your friends and said, this is horrific, you gave those people more publicity than they could have ever gotten, ever, even if they had an advertising budget of $100,000. You gave them a multi-million dollar publicity campaign. You told thousands and tens of thousands of people through viral marketing on their behalf about their idea. You exposed their idea, not just to people that thinks it's horrible, but go, well, if you're going to put one religion's crap up, why not put all religion's crap up? You did for them what they could never do for themselves, and you thought you were fighting them because something that did not affect you, you believed did. Because I don't know, your pastor told you there's a war on Christianity, and you believed it, and then you decided through perception bias that anything that looks like it must be, therefore it must be fought, therefore you became a tool. You became a tool of those you oppose. And I, I explained this to one, one of you guys on Facebook. You're probably listening to me right now, and it's, it's ringing a bell for you. And I don't know if you got it or not. They made you their tool. They misled you. They made, they put it out in an official-looking press release. Wow, it must be real. You can do a press release tomorrow that says your dog took a giant dump. And it'll look all official. Does it affect anybody? No. Does anybody care? No. This is the most controlling mechanism in media and in government in our country today. Exciting people with things 
that have no potential to ever occur and using it to mislead them. Okay. My next question, and taking it out of politics, I would say you could apply it to just about any situation if you were broad enough with it. Does it increase or decrease the power of government? Okay, so if it's not government in of itself, but let's say the establishment of an HOA, that would be the increasing power of one person over another. So I think maybe a better way to look at it, I guess that is government's very definition, does it increase the power of one person to control another person? And my response to that is generally, I don't want that under any circumstances. And I would say maybe more a way to, where it becomes government is without the other person's consent. If you have an HOA where every single person living in those homes at the time the HOA is formed is 100% okay with the HOA and its agreement, I think you're all stupid, but I do not oppose your voluntary choice to impose government upon yourself. Right? As long as you understand, the guy across the street that says no, you can't co-opt him in. And if he wants to sit out in his front yard in his, in his armchair drinking Budweiser with his feet propped up on his rusted-ass Chevrolet, yes, you have to look at it. Tough. But when anything increases the power of one person over another person without the mutual consent of both parties or all parties, I am opposed to it. It doesn't matter what it is. And when people say, well, then there'd be no law enforcement. Arrest. We can get to that discussion way down the road. I think there's enough power in existence for government and for uh, uh, governing bodies, both public and private, today, period. There is no more need for any additional power of one person over another without their consent. I, I, I'm telling you right now, I think that I personally feel that you should not be able to force anyone to do anything unless they are actively engaged in the harm of another person, whether it be physical uh, or, or by theft, right? Now, you get into a place where are you harming somebody if you're emotionally taunting them? Well, if you posted some stupid shit to their Facebook page, get over it, grow up. A person that's being hammered by somebody and attacked and ruthlessly, then, then that's an assault on the individual. Right? But if you're emotionally distressed because I have a rusty car, that's your problem. That's your problem. I have not, I have not victimized you. We've lowered my housing value. You shouldn't have bought a house next to me. Okay? It, that's a big one for me. Is it, does it increase or decrease the power of government? The next question I had, and again, this was all political issues at the time, was is it constitutional? Now, here's my view of that in the world today as someone who actually thinks the Constitution gives too much power to government. I understand that. I'd like to further restrict the power of government. I'd like to eventually lead us to a path with no state. I really would. But I'm a realist, and I know that the system is what it is today, and that you can't just take it away by pushing a button. Because that's, that's the magic libertarian or anarchist question. If you could push a button and make it all go away, would you? And my response would be, how long will it take for it to go away? 50 years? Psh, mashed button. Five minutes? No, I'm not pushing that button. Too much death, too much destruction, too much pain, too much misery. So we have to work within the confines of what we have right now. But what we do have is a document that we, we have as the foundational law of our country. 
And if somebody wants to do something, and that foundational law has not been amended or originally written as such that it's acceptable, then they don't get to do it. And that would mean that there's like probably 10,000 different ways that our government behaves right now that they simply would not be able to do. Many of the issues we're upset about that do affect us, like the NSA spying on your email, like the IRS monitoring your Twitter and Facebook accounts, right? These do affect people. These do matter. And they shouldn't happen. Now, the IRS thing with your Facebook and Twitter, I, I understand how that is technically constitutional because you've put it out publicly. But if you have your stuff set to only people that you approve can see it and they go looking at it anyway, which they probably do, then that would be unconstitutional, would it not? How many things does our government do that are unconstitutional? How about engaging in war without congressional approval or a declaration of war? The president does have the power to institute military force in emergency situations or for police actions, if you want to call it. But a full-on war is a full-on war. And if you're going to go to war, there's a process by which authority is granted to do so with a check by the American people. It might be too easy to declare war. We might need to restrict that further, but at least, could we not all agree, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, anyone that's a citizen of this country, at an absolute minimum, the actions of our government should be constitutional. And how would I broaden that out beyond government? That I believe that if we're making a decision about what to do in a company, that we've put together an agreement at the beginning of that company And if we didn't agree to allow that to happen, we don't do it. And unless everybody involved is okay with making the change, we don't do it. I mean, that's that's pretty simple. In our small groups, we've made a commitment to each other that if something happens, we're all going to be there for each other. We don't change our minds because it's inconvenient. This is just basically a way to, to deal with any issue. Does it meet the pre-agreed-upon terms with all parties involved? If not, who gave consent to change it? And if, you, if there was no consent to change, then we got to go by the original rules. And I'd say that's anything from a group of two people that have an agreement with each other on a handshake up to a nation underneath the Constitution. The next thing is, and this is a big one, Does it make people that agree on 95% of issues fight amongst themselves? I can bring up some other hot-button political issues, but I want you to think about the next time you're involved in a great debate with somebody, be it on Facebook or at the Thanksgiving table, which is really stupid and you shouldn't do, um, or anything like that. Are you talking to a person that if you broke down 10 issues, you would agree on 9? And then are you literally getting anger and hatred for this person over this one. And if so, it might be, it might be that that issue exists solely for the purpose of making you fight with each other. Your government wouldn't do that, would they? The media wouldn't do that, would they? Would they put stuff out there just to cause you to argue with each other? Would they do that? I, I think they do. Not even, I don't think they would. I think they do. And a lot of times, you'll, if you take this one back, 
You take this issue back and say, let's go through this issue again, starting at the first question, will it affect us? The two people fighting over, are we really affected by this? A lot of times you'll find out if it's that kind of an issue, the answer is no. Well, then don't worry about it. You can disagree with what you think, but don't worry about it as though it actually matters, because it doesn't. Does it increase or decrease the power of one person over another? Well, if it increases the power of one person over another, you probably shouldn't do it. Is it breaking a previous agreement? If it breaks a previous agreement, you know, and I think you'll find that almost every single issue that's highly divisive, that makes people that generally agree fight, will fail on one, two, or even all three of those first questions. It's, it will definitely fail on one of them. It will definitely fail on one of them. And then the next question is, what's it going to cost? And what is our ROI on it? What? So this is a business principle, right? And this is a governmental principle. We need a program that does blah, 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 blah. Well, what's it going to cost? And then you want to hear all this stuff about, well, government spends this much on this already. No, that, 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 shut up. Shut up. This one thing that you're telling us is so important that's made it this far through the test. We haven't thrown it out already. So far, it does affect me. It doesn't really increase the power of one person over another. It does pass constitutionality test, and it's not a divisive issue that's making people that normally agree with each other disagree. We're this far in the discussion. Let's look at it. What's it going to cost? But no, shut up and give me a number. Okay? What is it going to, what is the hard numbers behind, and I, I'm telling you, this is business. This is not just government. This is business. This is making a decision in your home about whether or not to do something like buy a new thing or take a vacation. What is it going to cost? Down to the penny. And what are the hidden costs that you're hiding from me? And what is the cost in inconvenience? What is the cost in pain? What is the, not just money, but I really want to know the number. What is it going to cost? And what do we get back? What's our ROI? That could be a monetary ROI or it could be an ROI in experience, uh, or a positive experience. So in other words, if the expense in a home is putting in a security system, the return of investment is peace of mind. Okay? That, that makes sense. But if the, investment is for billions and billions of dollars for radiation scanners to scan my butt every time I get on a plane and minimum wage jerks to go through my shit and ask me what I'm doing and where I'm going, which is none of their damn business. And my ROI is Ahmed, the dead terrorist won't kill me. I might want to look a little deeper about that before I say okay to it. And who's getting the ROI? Right, Because my next question is, who's going to pay for it and who benefits from it? And when you find out that key people in your government owned large portions of the companies that made the scanners that they put in the airport, that made those companies billions of dollars, that enriched the people in government that said we needed them, you start to draw some connections. Oh, that's conspiracy. No, it's, it's an analysis. Isn't it a reasonable question? 
This guy said we needed this. He was in a position of authority to, to, to influence getting it done. He did so successfully. The implementation did occur. Billions of dollars of government money were spent. Much of it ended up back in his pocket. I don't care if he's a Democrat. I don't care if he's a Republican. I don't care who he is. That's a fair question. And it's certainly a conflict of interest. Well, I just did what I thought was right for the American people. Then you should have recruited yourself from either the, the, the implementation, the choice of the implementation and the influence, or from the profits. You should have divested your interest in the company if you thought it was important enough that you needed to get it done. Or you should have said, on this issue, I cannot be involved. And folks, this is how companies are run. This is exactly how companies are run by moral, upright people. If I have a business with partners and there's a, a debated issue about what the company should do, and I stand to benefit extensively from doing it, and my, my partners do not, then the right thing for me to do as a, vo a voting stakeholder in the company is take myself out of that vote and say, you know what, I'm going to give you guys my opinion about this, and then I'm going to walk, and then you're going to vote on it, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to be at peace with the decision. That's moral and ethical. Because I'm not putting my self-interest above the interest of those who I've agreed to work with. But this is what our government does every day. Congress has legalized insider trading. Do you know this? The, the, the United States Congress are the only people that are able to use information that would send you to jail to make decisions on buying and selling stocks. In other words, if you have insider knowledge of companies' activities, let's say you were able to look at an earnings report two weeks before it was made public, and you then use that information to either buy stock in the company, knowing it's going to go up when that report comes out, or to play a short against that stock so that when it goes down, you would make money. That's called insider trading. It's not acceptable. It can land you up in federal prison. Okay, I don't know whether it should or not. I'm not saying it's a good law or a bad law. I'm just saying that's the law. That's the law for you and me. If you were working with a company as, let's say, a contractor, and you became privy to sensitive information, and you knew a timeline to when that information would be made public, and you knew that it was a publicly traded company, publicly traded entity, and you used that information to enrich yourself, you are in deep shit if you get caught. Well, Congress has passed a law that says that doesn't apply to them. And the reason that it doesn't apply to them is they have all these secret reports and special things and lobbyists coming in to present profile. And what they say is if you did that to us, we would not be able to invest in anything. It's, it's possible that we would have insider knowledge about just about anything. Well, then maybe you don't get to trade stocks when you're supposed to be serving your country in Congress. Maybe you could just buy and hold mutual funds like you tell the rest of us to do. And hope it works out for the best. Right? The, you, do you think your congressmen and senators had their 401k balances and their investment in, in portfolio balances cut in half in the recession of 2008? Or do you think that they were all perfectly positioned when the shitstorm came? Because they absolutely, fundamentally, 100% knew that it was coming. 
I didn't have insider knowledge and I knew it was coming. So you know they did. So whenever we're looking at it, the, the, we really have to ask, what is it going to cost? What's the ROI? Who pays for it? Who benefits? If you answer those four questions, you get a very clear picture of the motivation to get something done. And when the motivation is the enrichment of somebody versus actually helping others, you have to really question it. That doesn't mean there's not a place for profit in making money, but let's be honest about it. Let's be honest about what we're doing and why. This benefits people through action A. It also benefits pe people through revenue stream B. And here's who's got to pay the bill. And the difference between business and government is generally, if something enriches me, I have to fund it. I have to pay for it. I have to build it. I have to either build financial capital or social capital. I have to build something of value in order to convert it to a financial form of capital, a cash flow. And then I have to effectively shepherd and manage that cash flow if I'm to reap the rewards of it. And if I fail to do so, it's my loss. Not government. Not government. And not the corporatocracy. That's the case for small business, for medium-sized business, even rather large businesses. But the mega corporations don't play by those rules. They do not play by those rules. How could a company lose $40 or $50 billion in a quarter and still be in business? Have you ever asked, and not need a bailout? Right? How many companies, these megacorps, will post a loss of a couple billion bucks? And they just, just keep doing it. <laughs> Can you imagine this? I want you to think about this. If you run a business, let's say you run a business, it's a, uh, it does a million dollars a year in annual revenues and it generally makes a profit of about 50%. So generally your business is profitable to the tune of about a half a million dollars. Okay. And then this quarter, your business loses a quarter of a million dollars. Okay. And next quarter, your business loses another quarter of a million dollars. You've now in two quarters lost the sum total of the profit from the year before. Okay. And in the next quarter, it loses $300,000. It hasn't made a profit now for three quarters. Do you think your business would be in business? And these companies lose money and then they make money and then they lose money and they make money and they do this all the time. Because they have exceptional lines of credit and they're able to backfill the holes. And sooner or later when they get to the point where the hole's too deep, they come to the government and they get the government's money to fix it for them. So who pays for it then? You do. Who does it enrich? Them. Do you understand how simple this is? How it will quickly lead you to dissect bullshit from your government and from the media and from your best friends. It's, it, it is so simple. Who's paying for it? Who benefits the most? What's it going to cost? What's the ROI? And then the next thing is, okay, as we're looking at an issue, and you're, I don't want that, I think that's wrong, or I think we need this, is my personal prejudice or bias influencing my, influencing my judgment on this? Just because I like something or don't like something, doesn't mean that it's acceptable to use force to make other people agree with me or at least comply with my desires, right? So l l let's look at this cut and dry. 
let's say that you don't like blue jeans. You just hate blue jeans. You think blue jeans are sloppy, rednecky, that they just they suck. There should be no blue jeans. They're horrible. And you really believe this. Do you have a right to pass a law that says I can't wear blue jeans? Do you have the right to pass a law that says I can't but you I mean you really don't like it. Okay? Let's say that you determine through a study that people that wear blue jeans um that are too tight can have their reproductivity negatively affected, which is probably true. If you're a man and you wear jeans that are too tight, you probably you probably could long enough, aggravative enough, and tight enough, you probably could uh, negatively impact your ability to reproduce, which would also be one of the side effects of marijuana, supposedly, anyway. Which may be true, but I'm not saying it's not. Okay, So now you say, not only do I not like the blue jeans, but now I have proof that they could be harmful. Do you have a right to pass a law that tells another human being you can't wear this type of clothing? Or is it your personal bias driving that decision? Because it doesn't affect you that I wear blue jeans, other than you don't like it. And it's not my responsibility to live my life in a way that you like, nor is it your responsibility to live your life in a way that I like or approve of. It is solely our responsibilities to not interfere with the other person's ability to live their life their way by their choice. Really, really simple. So I find that most of the time, when an issue fails, the does it really affect me question, and and many of them do, and a person is still in the fight, that we have to have this law, or we have to have this restriction, or we have to have this control, or we have to make sure other people don't, or we have to make sure other people do, it is almost always the case that it also fails this question, your personal prejudice and bias is influencing your judgment on this. And I'm very tempted to bring in a few other political issues that, that do this. I don't want to do that for you today. I want you to take the, the, the question as it is, as, as pure as possible, and start applying it to your life. You know, if it's because you believe something religiously, well, then it should pl- apply to people that, that believe in your religion. If I do not have your religion in my life, and I don't want it in my life, then your religious belief should not apply to me. Well, there's a commandment against killing, so you're saying that if you're not my religion... Come on. Now we're harming another being. Now we're doing harm to someone else. We've broken the non-aggression principle. If we're stealing from or doing harm to someone else, and then people try to draw the connections. Well, there's a study from Scotland that shows that families are more likely to be divorced. No, no, no. That is not directly harming you. And I'll tell you what, I can make a bigger case than any issue you will bring up for divorce. That the way that divorce is handled in the legal system, where one party can end up paying another party for the rest of their life, for just for the fact that they exist, and where children are used as pawns, and the government structure we have is responsible for divorce. That the welfare system is responsible for divorce. I can show you a hundred things more responsible for divorce than any of these etherical roundabout ways that it might happen. And again, if you say that the behavior leads to other behavior and the second behavior is criminal, you prosecute the criminal behavior. Otherwise, we go back to, well, uh, 100% of meth addicts used water first. 
100% of murderers ate food before they killed somebody. You can be extreme to the point of mediocrity and stupidity, and that's what often happens. So I, I really challenge you, whenever you're debating an issue or considering how to come on down on an issue, not for your personal choices. I think definitely your personal choices should include, on some level, your prejudice and bias. In other words, if you really feel that it's wrong to do something, as I said earlier this week, you should not do it. If you really feel that doing something is correct and right, and it does no harm to anyone else, that is the big key, then you should do it. If it's illegal, you better be careful about how you do it, or where you do it, or when you do it, what have you. But I really don't think that anybody should be telling anybody that there's anything they can or cannot do, or should be required to do, if doing or not doing them harms anyone else. But I do think you have an absolute right to say, I don't approve of that. And I think in the bounds of your home, you have the right to say, if you live in my home, that behavior is not acceptable in my home. Or if you visit my home, that behavior is not acceptable in my home. For instance, I swear on the air. Sometimes I say shit. <gasps> oh, God, no. But yes, sometimes I do. But if I came to your house and you, first of all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't swear unless someone else in the home did and it implied that it was acceptable behavior. If I came into your home, I would assume it's not acceptable. But if you said, look, Jack, I listen to your show. I love your show. But I got kids here and uh, we do not use what I consider swear words in my home. I would say, while I'm in your home, your rules apply. If I came to your home and you said, Jack, um, I know your stance on the Second Amendment. But we do not allow guns in our home. I would either choose to disarm and lock my gun in my vehicle, or I would choose not to enter your home. But I would never tell you for a second that you don't have a right to make that choice. I would tell you that your bias and prejudiceness should not affect my ability to do the same in reverse in my home. In other words, if you came to my home and said, Jack, um, we're not comfortable with the fact that you have guns in your home, would you remove all the guns before I show up? Pound sand. And life's pretty simple when you live it that way. We end up voluntarily choosing to associate with people that we want to associate with, which is how human society should be. The next thing is, what happens if we do something? Whatever it is we're discussing, what's the result You know, what are the consequences? Somebody made a really interesting point on my show about the wolves in Yellowstone. And I said that man would have, if man wanted to change the course of the river, we would have used excavators and all types of things like that. And we would have probably done a terrible job of it, by the way. Expended massive amounts of energy, but the wolves did it just by being wolves. And the guy said, well, not exactly. Man did do it. Man introduced the wolf. And the consequences of that were the river being changed, the geology of the of the of the, the area being changed, because we did it, and we need to think about unintended consequences. It's a great point. My my response to it was good point, except we did not introduce the wolf. We put the wolf back. We were the ones that took it away in the first place. So in that case, it really wasn't intervention; it was restoration. That's a good way to think about this question. What happens if we take this action? Would we be putting things back the way they were prior to somebody screwing it up, 
or are we are we intervening in a new way? And what will be the consequences? And not just one step. So this is the problem. In America, you have been conditioned to play freaking checkers. Okay? This piece goes here. That means this piece goes there. You might think one or two moves ahead. And it's hard to think much further in checkers than a couple of moves ahead because the game is so basic. And because it's so basic, it only has so many variables, and that means there's only so many points at which somebody is going to do something radically different, and that actually makes it, believe it or not, less predictable. It makes it less predictable. I know it seems like that doesn't make sense, but it's true. It really does. The checkers player only thinks at most two or three moves ahead. The chess player is thinking in five different games simultaneously and five or six moves in each different game. The master chess player. The master chess player is saying, I'm going to move my pawn here. He's probably going to move his rook that way. If he does that, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and then in response to that, 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 and that. But if he doesn't move the rook that way, he's probably going to move the knight. If he moves the knight there, then what I'm going to be... See? Okay, the people running the show are playing that three-dimensional space chess from Star Trek where it's not just chess, but it's on three different boards and the pieces move between them. And they're asking you to play a dumbed-down version of checkers, and you're complying. You're complying with it. Because what they're saying is, if we do this, then we'll get this. And that's either good or bad, and they polarize you either way on the issue. And instead of saying, well, here's all the interconnected systems to this. And here's all, here's the chain reaction of events that'll occur if we take this action, if we take this intervention, if we obstruct this current system, if we restrict this current behavior, if we encourage this behavior. Instead of just, you can't just look at the, 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 the net sum, right? The, the direct ROI. You have to go be, now we're with the next level of analysis. We have to go to the longer term overview. What will occur? If we do this, and that leads right to the next question, which is generally the more powerful question. What happens if we don't do anything? What if we just leave it alone? I think in most instances, unless we've already screwed it up and we're putting it back, many times that's the simple answer. Because a lot of times when you ask that question, people say, oh, my God, if we don't do anything, we must do something. And you say, just, no, wait a minute. What happens If we don't do anything at all, you know, whenever there's an accident or somebody gets killed or something like that, we have to do something. Why? Because we're emotionally charged up. We, we, we've seen a tragic loss of life and we feel we have to do something. But do we really? Or do we need to do something or do we simply need to change the way we think? Changing your thought is easy. Doing something has a lot of consequences to it. Here's an example of that. This is a real-world example. Nothing was done, really, but I can see a world where it would have been done. And if, if maybe the wreck had involved a busload of children instead of just two different vehicles and several people dying, uh, more would have been you know, done to, to fix the problem. So in Texas, I don't remember exactly when, but it wasn't that long ago, some kids went out and they stole the stop sign. They thought it was funny, and they wanted a stop sign, so they, they stole the stop sign. It wasn't funny because there was a wreck. I don't remember the exact details, but I think I think several people were killed, 
I think somebody was, there was some serious injuries. I don't think everybody died. I don't remember, but it was a small number of people. Um, the children were held responsible. They were, you know, older teenagers. And there was jail time and, and things like that. And it ended at that. And it was very widely publicized. And I think thinking was changed by a lot of people. I think that a lot of people, younger people, especially, you know, prone to do pranks and stuff like this, as soon as they heard that, are like, oh my God, I would, I would, You know, I thought it was funny and take stop him. No, I would never do it now. It's obviously that this is a serious uh, thing that can happen. And kids stealing signs, you know, is is not exactly a new phenomenon. But usually, kids steal things like street signs with names they like or something like that. Not a freaking stop sign. That is a life and death choice to take a stop sign now because now, especially the person that's driving through that knows the area expects the person to stop because they know there's a stop sign there and the person that's not from the area that has no idea goes right through because they assume it's it's wide open and you get two vehicles at high rates of speed colliding with each other which is what occurred now can you not see a place let's say this event had been as tragic as it was and if anybody knows anybody involved in this i'm not demeaning their life i'm just saying more tragic on the media perspective let's say a busload of children collided with a semi-truck because of this. And, you know, 50 children were killed senselessly in this exploding flame as this propane truck or something hit it. The media would have been all over that. That would have been news around the world. Tragedy. Could you not see somebody in government saying, you know what, we, we something has to be done? And saying, I have a simple solution. The problem is that anybody with an adjustable wrench can steal a sign. That's the problem. Why don't we get contractors from the state to go out and weld every single nut on the shank of the bolt? And honestly, that's probably more intelligent than just about any government solution that, that they would have actually come up with, even though it's a bad idea. So all, cause I mean, you just take a little welding rod and an electric welder in a truck and you just drive up to the sign and the guy stands up and goes, and done. That's that fast. Next sign. But there's millions and millions of signs. Now, somebody has to go out. So that would have cost tons of money when all it was really needed was a reinforcement to people. Hey, look, this is why you don't do this shit, right? We didn't need to do something. We just needed to change people's thinking. You don't do this. Here's why. So we died. No, now we're going to spend millions of dollars doing this. But now we have an entire new problem because this sign looks like crap and people can't see it anymore. So you send a guy out there to, to, to replace the sign. Well, now he's got to get, he's got to cut the bolt off somehow because he's got the nut welded on. So now we have to invest money to make sure that all of our people that do the service work have this additional capability. Plus, we have to buy more bolts. We have to throw away the stuff that's cut off. Because we had to do something. Because the tragedy was so massive that something had to be done. Where I'm sure this has happened to other places. But because it wasn't a busload of orphans or something... Just random people that the media can say, oh, this is tragic. Oh, let's move on. What's the weather like, Steve? Because it's like that. Because it wasn't a 24-7 story. Because it didn't happen at the Boston Marathon or what have you. Because it didn't involve an airplane. Okay? Because it wasn't to that level, there was no, let's, we got to go do something. And that means that what needed to happen probably did in that case. 
The people responsible were held responsible. They weren't tried with premeditated murder one or something like that, which would have been completely inappropriate. They did do some jail time, which probably is appropriate. They did cause loss of life and property and physical ability. Their actions did have a consequence, and they should have had to account for it, and they did. But can't you see government making that proposal? But see, government would have made it more complicated. They would have been like, we need, and this might come someday, by the way, right? What we should have is a database. A database of all the stop signs and all the yield signs and everything. And with this new GPS technology, your car should be required to have a GPS in it and a little screen. And if you're coming up to a place where you should stop, your car should tell you there's supposed to be a stop sign there, whether it is or not. Let's mandate that. And let's go back to what's it going to cost us? What's the ROI on it? Who's paying for it? And who benefits the most financially? And you want to bet the guy that proposes that in government's going to have some kind of ownership in a GPS company or something like that? So what happens if we don't do anything? In the case of the, the instance I just told you about, we didn't do anything. But I think awareness was naturally raised not to do this. And I haven't heard of anything like it happening in the state of Texas again since. We didn't need to do anything. There's so many times where people feel like, oh, we need this, oh, we need... You don't need to do nothing. Leave it alone. <laughs> Does it set up the future potential for government intrusion in more areas? In other words, it, it, as bad as it is, could it be worse if we do this? Will it, will it lead to more intrusion? Patriot Act. The Patriot Act. How many people on the right defended the Patriot Act when it was put into place? Oh, they'll never be listening. They don't. I remember talk radio hosts. They're, they, they're not interested in your grandmother's email, for God's sakes. They're just trying to protect us. The same people now are just blown away with how intrusive this government is because it's not their guy doing it. Well, the question should just be, does it set up the future potential for government intrusion in more areas? If it does, we probably shouldn't be doing it. The government has enough access to us right now they don't need anymore. Boy, that was true when I said it in 2009. Wow, is it true now. Think of how far we've fallen since the first time I said that question should be asked about anything we do. Think about that. Next one, do I really need to be for or against this issue? Okay, do I need to take a stand here? Now, this is, this is right back to will it affect me. I'm kind of asking the same question two different ways to, to kind of push you a little bit. Is it necessary for me to have a stand here? Okay, I'm going to go into the political issues Because I have to to explain what I mean by this. So, gay marriage. My philosophy on gay marriage is, I don't care. It's not that I'm for it. It's not that I'm opposed to it. I don't care. It's not necessary for me to take a stand. Constitutionally, I believe in, you know, again... I think the government has too much power even under the Constitution, but if we're going to have it, we should follow it. I see it as equal protection under the law. You've offered two people of a certain sex 
one set of protections under the law, and you've excluded another two people based on their sex from that protection under the law. I think it's completely unconstitutional to outlaw gay marriage. I think it's unconstitutional. Doesn't matter whether I like it or not. Now, my actual stance, I don't believe the state should have anything to say about who marries who. I don't think people should be treated differently because they're married or not married. I don't think that someone that loves someone should be kept outside of a hospital room because they don't have a binding marriage contract. I think that marriage, as we practice it in the United States today, is polygamy. Polygamy. Want me to prove it? I know you don't believe it. I'm going to prove it. And I am married, legally, in the United States of America. I was married in the state of Texas. I didn't realize this at the time when I got married, because I didn't think critically at the time that I got married, but when I entered into a marriage with Dorothy in the state of Texas, I did not enter into a marriage solely between myself and my spouse. I entered into a marriage between myself, my wife, and the state of Texas. And the state of Texas made certain provisions for how the marriage would function and what would happen if the marriage was dissolved. Now, the proof that it truly is a three-party relationship is what happened when we moved to Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania has different provisions for what happens to a terminated marriage. And they recognize the marriage from Texas, but they do not recognize the provisions Texas puts into the marital contract. You're now a Pennsylvania resident. Well, I didn't marry you. Okay, I married my wife and I married Texas. You do not apply. Had we gotten divorced in Pennsylvania and Dorothy wanted to and had sued me for divorce and said that she was entitled to alimony and the state of Pennsylvania said, you, Jack Spirko, shall pay alimony, I would have had to pay alimony. Now, if that happened, odds are we would have both moved back to Texas for different reasons and then we would have both existed in the state of Texas, but the state of Pennsylvania would have enforced their judgment that I owed her alimony. How about that? Which means the state of Pennsylvania altered my contract and altered her contract and altered Texas's contract without the consent of any of the three. Just by where we lived. Which means if you're married today, you're married to a state, and whatever state you move to changes your contract by their own choice. I'm sorry, I don't think that should be the case. So I don't think I need to be for or against gay marriage. I think that if I have a religious objection to that, then I should not condone it, but I don't have to be for it or against it. I just have to say that's not what I do, and I don't recognize it personally. You tell me that's your husband and you're a dude, I don't, I don't see it that way. And, and, and the two guys that are married, you guys have no right to tell that guy he has to accept what you've said. What you've said is between you, the person you're married to, and your version of God, and those you choose to be communal with, those who, who recognize you as a unit. But that requires the removal of the state. But because I don't think the state should be there in the first place, I don't have to have a position on this. And that saves me so much energy, so much fighting, so much debating, I don't care. It's not my business. And you can make all the cases you want for or against it, and I can go, I don't care, it's, it's not my business. I have things that actually affect me, that actually matter, that I need to take a stand on. This is not one of them. Because it's, it, it, it doesn't matter. Okay, now if we get this far, 
if we've passed the test this far, what would we be left to deal with? How many things will we just never fight about? I mean, do you not think that we would actually start saying things to our government like, hey, 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 hey guys, 17 trillion bucks, where'd it go? Where is it? What'd you do with it? How are you going to pay it back? Oh, we're not paying it. Our kids aren't paying it. You guys spent it. You guys figure out how to get it back. Do you, do you think that when there's two candidates debating in a debate for an election that are saying the same shit, we might not all, all of a sudden go, wait a minute, you guys are saying the same stuff. Well, we differ on here and here. Well, we don't care about those two things. And you're not going to do anything with them anyway. You know, this guy has to drown the orphans bill, and this guy has to kill the puppies bill. I don't care. That says something about your character. You're both jackasses, but neither one of you are going to get that done, so I don't care. Don't you think that there'd be greater accountability for the things that actually matter? And isn't this the case in business? Customer relationships. What if companies couldn't just get people jazzed up emotionally about shit? What if the next time they put on a commercial and they showed some hot-ass chick, advertised some makeup, if America's women were realistic and just said, that doesn't apply to me. If I'm going to use makeup, I'm going to use it works. She doesn't apply to me. She's a professional model. She's been airbrushed. The lighting's perfect. They spent freaking eight hours doing her hair and makeup for this one shoot. They shot it from 17 different angles. They picked the two best angles. I'm not going to let that person make me feel like shit. Wake up, women of America, because you are the easiest to manipulate with stuff like that. That's why every other trash magazine that I see when I go to the grocery store tells you seven ways you can lose weight or some other bullshit because you all think you're fat, whether you are or not. If you're fat, stop being fat. If you're not fat, stop thinking you're fat. If you're not built the way these supermodels are, get on your knees and thank the God of your choice because you're not an anorexic idiot, okay? You don't need to look that way. Well, if we only focused on issues that pass the test, that shit wouldn't work on you. You wouldn't give a shit. You'd know it doesn't affect you. If you do nothing, you're probably better off. It's only going to cost you money, and you're going to get no return of your investment. You or your family are going to pay for it, and whatever you're paying for to buy their crap could have been spent to do something that was actually beneficial in your life. See, it's not just about government. But it certainly applies to government. If we took this critical analysis of everything put in front of us, we would immediately take 90% of it and just shit can it. And then we take the other 10% of it and we divide it up into actionable and non-actionable. And then we'd actually come to the positive actionable items And we'd focus on that. And that would scare the shit out of the establishment. Can you imagine being a politician? And, and you start to hear people talking like I am right now. And you go, oh, it's one guy. They won't listen to him. But what if about 10 million people started thinking this way? In your district. Well, that scare the shit out of you. What if you were 
in corporate advertising, corporate marketing, and you started to realize that advertising at the third grade level doesn't work anymore. Do you know that's what they do? Madison Avenue ad firms have a philosophy that you pitch whatever you're pitching on TV, the internet, radio, doesn't matter, at a third to fourth grade level. That's not something I'm pulling out of my ass, guys. That's the truth. There's a litmus test. Does this reach the fourth grader in people? Is it stupid enough to make them behave stupid? Because they don't advertise you based on logic. There's an old saying in sales, features tell, benefits sell. Well, manufactured benefits sell even better. So when they try to sell you a car, they show people driving down the coast of California to freedom because they have this car. Freaking moped will drive on that road. That road has, the benefit of that road has absolutely nothing to do with that particular make and model of car. The car you have right now will drive down that road, but people will see that road. And because they buy into bullshit, they'll buy the car. And this is how marketing is done in America today. You, it's one thing to sell a benefit, it's another thing to sell a manufactured false benefit. Back to school time. All the kids are smiling and bouncing down the hallways with their backpacks and their new clothes from Target because that makes them happy. Bullshit. Those kids aren't bouncing. You go to a freaking school and they never, those kids do not look like that. They do not have those big beaming smiles on their faces. They're not bouncing down the hallway and you taking your kid to Target or whatever store and buying them a bunch of freaking brand new clothes that they don't need. Will not change that. The school's broken, not their clothing. See, when you go into this type of critical analysis, all of these things become very, very self-evident very, very quickly. And this is why we've removed this type of thinking from our school systems. Common core. Let's write a math sentence to describe, and they try to hide it as logic. It's bullshit. I saw one where they said, write a math sentence, and basically the problem was 7 minus 4. And they're supposed to write a math sentence to explain how they got the answer. And the kid wrote, the answer is 3. My sentence is, I got it in my head. Smart kid. Dumb system. They do not want critical analysis. That's why they do not teach critical analysis. They want dip switches. Binary code, ones and zeros, on and off. They do not want critical analysis. And if you do criti cri critical analysis, if you rise to the crop, you're going to be co-opted into whatever echelon you fit in, which is a hallmark of fascism, by the way. Divisions between the classes to be mediated by industry and the state for the benefit of both. That is a textbook definition of fascist economics. And that is the system that we run in today. I just put out a thing on Facebook today that says that a university, major university, I don't remember which one was, an Ivy League major university, might have been Princeton or Harvard or whatever, came out with a study of the United States political system and said, we're an oligarchy. We're not a democracy, we're an oligarchy. Well, 
Princeton, uh, we're not supposed to be a democracy. We're supposed to be a democratically elected republic, which has far more individual freedoms and protections than a pure democracy. But I get your point, and at least your conclusion's correct. We're an oligarchy, which means ruled by the elite. Well, you can't have rule by the elite with critical thinking citizenry. You have to have dumbed-down, divided citizenry. That's why they don't want this. I mean, how little ability would our government have to bullshit us? Or would Madison Avenue have to bullshit us if this is how we handled everything they threw at us? I know some of you don't like that I say shit. Get your kid to listen to this show anyway and say, we don't talk like Jack, but he's right about this. Because, damn it, this is what we need to be teaching our kids. This is important. Why? You need to do something. Why? Why is this important? How does this affect me? What's it going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? If we do this, who benefits? And people will say, well, that's just selfish behavior. It's not selfish behavior. It's not selfish to ask honest, critical questions about an idea that's being proposed that affects people. It's called being freaking responsible. You don't just pick a side because of how you feel. And that's what they, that's exactly what they want you to do. Ford cannot really make a case that you're better off with their car than Chevy, so they play to your emotions because you're a Ford guy. Or you're a Chevy guy. Or you're a Toyota guy. Or you're a Subaru guy. Well, you wouldn't want to be one of those foreign car guys, would you? You want to buy American made. And the American car is now made overseas. And the overseas brand is now made in Tennessee. They'll still market it to you as though that's not the case. Because our unions have sent our, our, our American companies into a place where it's more economically advantageous for the manufacturer overseas, which is ridiculous, which is why companies like Toyota manufacture in places like Tennessee and Louisiana. Of course it costs less to build a car for Americans in America. Of course it does. Duh. It doesn't have to go on a ship to get here. But Toyota doesn't have to worry about unions. Now, but I'm pro-union. See, this is where you just, you're going off the rails of logic. This is the result. Think whatever you want. Believe whatever you want. Be emotionally led. Analyze the results. These are the results. These are the results. We need to be doing this with everything. If everyone did this, you know what? We would all know what we believe and why we believe it. The biggest problem we have in America with the, this, this, this misled attitude of people, this, this way that people just follow one side or the other, A or B, Pepsi or Coke, gold or silver, right? I mean, you know, Wendy's or McDonald's, whatever decision you're making, and they just go one way or the other. You know, Coke or Pepsi, I don't know. I think they're both piss. That, that, so I think neither. Okay, that's my response. I, I think they're both high fructose corn syrup infested with atrazine and genetically modified organisms that don't taste anything like the original of either one of them. I, so I think they're both piss. I don't care if the thing's half full or half empty. I don't want to drink that. But I know why I believe what I believe. 
I know why I believe that Coke is not what Coke was when I was a little kid when it was made out of sugar. Because it's not. I know why I believe there's genetically modified organisms in my Coca-Cola today. Because there are. Because the sweetener comes from corn, which is almost all genetically modified. I know why I think there's atrazine in there, because I know they spray atrazine on the corn. Now, with that knowledge, I either have to say, I am okay eating genetically modified organisms, consuming atrazine, and drinking corn sugar, and believing in a brand that no longer exists. And I'm okay with that, because I know why I believe what I believe. Or I have to say, because of those things, I choose not to drink this piss. Got it? See, now now it's okay. Either choice is fine, because I'm actually clear on what I believe. Because I believe the average person, if they were clear on their decisions, would make better decisions. I don't think they would always make the right decision. I don't think it would lead to utopia. But I think, by and large, if people did a critical analysis when making a decision, they would make better decisions. When it comes down to purchasing something, they would make better decisions. When when Dorothy and I didn't have that much money yet, there was this big chair that we, we really wanted for our house, our first house we had together. And it was pretty expensive. I think it was like 700 bucks. And at the time, 700 bucks was... We had to sacrifice to buy something for $700. We had to give up. We had to save for a couple months. We had to not go out to eat. We had to put some money aside and say, this is the chair's money. And then when we get to that $700, we can go buy the chair. While we were saving the money up and the pile got a little bigger and got a little bigger and we got closer, we went back to that store, I think, about six or seven times. Now, we didn't go out just to go to the store. That was dumb. But when we were out and about and we were driving, I said, let's go take a look at that chair again. And we'd look at it and we'd sit in it and we'd go... Do we really want to spend this $700 on this chair? And we would think, what are all the other things that money could do for us? And in the end, we decided we had enough money, we had enough income, we had saved up, we were going to pay cash, we weren't going to go in debt. Yes, we bought the chair. We had the chair for years, we were pretty damn happy with it. But how many people do that? How many people, when they're making a significant expenditure on something in their lives that's supposedly going to make their lives better, actually take that approach. We had a big rule, too, like anything that was over a couple hundred bucks, even once we kind of got to a point where, like, if we're going to spend 150 bucks, it was no big deal, $200. We could, couldn't do it every day, but if we went out and saw something that was 200 250 bucks, and we wanted it and we bought it, it wasn't going to change the temperature of the air in our room. It was, we'd gotten pretty pretty stable. We decided that once it was over a couple hundred dollars, that it was significant whether or not it actually had an immediate dramatic impact on us or not. And if we saw something that we wanted for that much money, we would wait 48 hours before buying it. We, we didn't even have to beat ourselves up over it. We just would wait 48 hours. And then the guy said, well, you know, it's only on sale till Monday and it's Sunday afternoon. Shut up. Go away. I promise you one thing. We're not buying it from you. Go. Be gone. And I actually talk to salespeople like that when they say stupid shit like that. So, um, but we made this decision. We would just wait 48 hours before making the decision. And it's amazing how many things we didn't buy. And didn't resent not buying. And didn't resent buying later. This is, this is all we really need to start moving the ball in the right direction in America. And we need to teach children this. We need to teach children not even just the questions today, but this, this methodology of thinking. This, this analysis, I've given you an issue. 
I've told you what I believe. Defend the issue and object to the issue. Build me a case for and against this. I, I think that's if you really want to be active on an issue, you should have to build you know, you should have to build a case for and against it. You'd have to be able to play devil's advocate and explain the other side's thinking. And if if the other side is wrong and you take the time to understand how the other side thinks, why the other side thinks, and actually to build a case as though you were an attorney defending a client in a court of law and it was your duty to defend them even though you you would prefer not to, then as the prosecutor you would do a better job. If I was an attorney, if I was a criminal prosecutor, I would, in my head, and probably practice like an act, you know, like a, like a rehearsal, I would probably defend the client, not in court, but behind closed doors as though I were the defense attorney. I would come up with everything and I would verbally speak the defense. And I would use it in my prosecution. Assuming I believe the guy was guilty, by the way. If I were a defense attorney, I would rehearse the part of the prosecutor. Especially if I believe the guy was innocent that I'm defending. And I would use that two-sided approach to have a better understanding of the totality of the issue, the gravity of the issue, so that I could do my best job. And I, I think when I was talking recently about creation and evolution and, and intelligent design, we had a really great discussion on the blog without anybody calling anybody a bigot or something stupid like that, an open discussion about you know evolution and evolution not necessarily disproving God and, and what have you. And one of the things that we came out of it with was the concept, well, how about teaching kids origin of life in the universe through this project? There are three primary accepted theories for the origin of life and the origin of the universe. Discover what they are and build a case for and against each of them. At the end, you may present your conclusion or you can choose to let your three objective reviews speak for themselves. But you must build a solid case for and against all three theories. Not only do they have to analyze all three theories, not only do they have to build a case for and against all three theories, do you notice what didn't get given to them? They didn't tell them what they are. They would have to then go out and determine for themselves that there is the proposed theory of pure creationism, that there is the theory of pure evolution, that everything happened mathematically as accidents and coalesced molecules, and then there's the theory of intelligent design. That evolution may be true or maybe partially true, but there's some architecture, some greater intelligence within the universe that many of us refer to as God that had some influence on the assemblage. Or the process itself, even if it is purely evolutionary from its standpoint, exists because it was willed so through the creation or the intelligence of the universe itself. Those are the three theories. I'm not going to tell you which one I believe. You can probably figure it out, but... Hey, why not let the student discover that information for themselves? And why not let them do their own investigation? And as long as they didn't write four words that said, I don't care, period, as their report, 
it's probable that all of them would end up with A's. As long as they did the work. Why? Because you didn't ask them which one was right. You asked them to learn about the three. And at the age that kids are introduced to this in school, they don't need to have a final decision on that. Whether you like it or not, your kids are going to believe what they're going to believe when they're grown. You only have so much influence. Wouldn't it be better that they knew why they believed what they believed when they got there? This is the way to change America. Critical analysis. And if you think we're going to put it into our public school system, you are so misled. Let's look at the questions another way as I close up here today. What is the ROI and what's it going to cost us and who's paying for it and who benefits the most financially? Okay, the people in charge of education and the country today and the commercial interests that are involved there. Because now you can get Chick-fil-A for freaking lunch at freaking high school, okay? right? So the commercial interest is all over the school system as well. So you've got the oligarchy, you've got the plutocracy, you've got the corporatocracy, and you've got the government all over this, okay? And these are all the people that control and benefit the most from the busted education system. So who's going to pay if we teach critical thinking in our schools? Let's not talk about financials now, but who's going to pay? Who, who has the most to lose? Well, the people in control do. Okay, What's the ROI? Well, ROI is eliminating and reducing their control, which is a negative ROI for them. Who's paying for it? In that case, we might have to fit the bill to put the materials into the school to teach this, though I think it could be done with good lectures right, and good assignments. I don't think we need lots of books. We don't have the Internet. We have the Internet, okay? We don't need new textbooks and crap. We have the Internet for this. So there wouldn't be a lot of cost, but if there was an initial financial outlay, yes, through our taxes we would pay for it, which we're paying anyway. But they would pay for it in the fact that they would lose control. Who would benefit the most financially? The people would. Because they would end up with the next generation of critical thinkers innovating and developing and going further than we ever have before and, and, and a, a greater loss of control by the oligarchy. So everything in there benefits the common man at the expense of the elitist in control who has a complete headlock on the system right now. So why would the people in control ever allow this? Why would they ever let it happen? And if you're going to defend teachers to me again, if you're a teacher, teach this and see what happens. You'll probably get fired. You could probably knock off a post office and not lose your job as a teacher. But if you go into your classroom and you begin to rigorously teach critical thinking, if you take the lesson plan the state has made you put together and throw it to the side, and say, no, okay, we're supposed to cover this in science today, I'm going to make these kids examine and explore and develop this for themselves, and I'm going to make them come up with their own theories and their own opinions, and I'm not going to use the state-approved crap, and I don't care what their test is, I'm going to test them based on their ability to learn and prove that they've learned, you are in deep shit. And if you're not, man, do it. Consider yourself blessed for whatever school you're in, 
and let other teachers know to come teach where you're at. Because there's probably some sorry-ass teachers that need to get their butts out of the way. So motivated teachers like that can get in there and do that kind of work. So who's going to teach your kids this? You are. Start making your kids analyze stuff. They don't want to. They say it's boring. Make them do it with stuff they like. If your kid likes Iron Man comic books, do a critical analysis of Iron Man. If your little girl likes Barbie in her dream house, let's do a critical analysis of Barbie's dream house. She might not be so fond of Barbie by the time it's all over with. But that's her decision, not yours. It's okay if little girls like Barbie. And maybe that's not the best place to start, but you get my point. We can teach grammar, logic, and rhetoric with any subject out there. So engage your children in critical analysis and thought in the areas they have interest in. It'll work. They like to talk about shit they like. Don't you get that? Critical analysis of a video game. Well, video games are stupid. That's what you think. It's not what your kid thinks. Every video game has an objective, a plot line. It was coded by a certain company. Who's the company that made your game? Oh, they're, you know, I'll date myself, Atari. Well, where are they based out of? What else do they have? What do they do? What kind of people work there? What kind of education do you have to have to make a video game? I don't care. What do you care about in this game? Getting to the next level. What's the next level? What's this? What happens when you get there? That. Why? Whatever gets the freaking mind going. Do it in the garden. That plant's not as high as that plant. Why? I don't know. Well, think about it. What's different about it? Every place you can turn your kids' minds on to a critical analysis, do it. And then no one will have power over them. I think parents are afraid to do it sometimes because that means you won't either. I'm going to finish with this thought today. I didn't know that I would, but I've said it before, and, and I'll, I'll conclude with it here today. Your job as a parent is to work yourself out of a job. That is the purpose of parenting. Now, that doesn't mean that your son is ever not your son or your daughter is ever not your daughter. That doesn't mean that they can't always come home to you. That doesn't mean you won't always be there to support them. That doesn't mean that you won't always be there with motherly or fatherly advice and a hug and reassurance when necessary. But when I say your job, I mean your job of basically holding them captive. You understand that your children are born into captivity. That's not true. Really, set your baby free on a highway and see what happens. Please don't do that. I'm just trying to make a point. Take a baby and set it free in the middle of a field. You've just murdered a child by freeing them. Children are captives of their parents. Now, they're benevolently captive. But they're captive. You keep them in a play pen. It, a crib, in general, closes up a lot like a jail cell. There's no roof on it, but that's just because they haven't figured out how to get out yet. Your child is given their own room. There's a door. When they're little and you baby-proof things, you put locks on all of the cabinetry. I'm not saying any of this is bad. This is how you keep them from killing themselves. When they're walking around and you see a sharp corner in a baby's head, you always worry if you're paying attention. All right? So kids are born into captivity. 
as they get older, the level of captivity is reduced and the level of freedom is increased. This is called maturing, right? Because there's certain things you can't let kids do at certain ages. You wouldn't give a five-year-old a can of gasoline and a pack of matches unless you're a moron, okay? But when he's 12, he might have lot matches to burn the, the, the garbage and gas to put in the, in the, in the lawnmower because he's cutting the grass for his allowance. Even though he has a chore, it's greater freedom. And somewhere around that 18-year age, I'm not saying that, you know, on day 18 plus one, I used to joke with my son, and this didn't happen, but I used to joke with my son for his 18th birthday, he was getting a big box of hefty sacks, put all his shit in so he could move, right? It was a joke. It never never was going to happen. So I'm not saying to do that. But I'm saying by about that point, other than basic household rules that you'd have with any guest, you shouldn't be telling your kid how to live anymore if you've done your job right. And if you have to, somewhere... Along the way, you have failed to impress that responsibility level on them, or you've done it well and you don't trust yourself. And that's usually the case. It's usually the case when you have a 19, 20-year-old kid still living at home, and mom and dad are still doing things and still restricting things they should not be, that the kid is not incapable, the parents don't trust that they've done a good enough job. Well, when you teach critical analysis, you put those kids on an accelerated path so that by the time they are around that 18th year, they have that. Because I don't have to explain to you why something's dangerous because you can work it out for yourself. Why aren't we teaching this in school again? Think about it. What's the cost? What's the ROI? Who pays for it? Who benefits the most financially? Not just when we do something, but when we refuse to do something. We refuse to instill critical thinking in Americans today. We refuse to do it in the workplace. We refuse to do it in media. And we refuse to do it at the educational level as a collective people. We have chosen this. And America, whether you like it or not, we've given our consent to it by allowing it to happen. But you are awake. And you do not have to. And you can choose to think critically. And you can choose to teach critical thinking. You can choose to exercise it and demonstrate it. I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to share this one with kids, at least parts of it. Or at least talk to them about the things that you've learned today. Get them engaged in engaging critical analysis with your children on any damn thing they're interested in. Because you can critically analyze anything. You may not like the results at the end of it, and you may like the results at the end of it. But it doesn't matter. It's not the results that matter. It's the process and training the mind to critically analyze each situation so that we make the best decisions for ourselves, our families, and our communities. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way.
Yeah.